You're listening to Father Kirby Longo's Homilies, powered by Mountain Catholic. Father Kirby is a priest of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Helena, the parochial vicar of St. Anne's Parish in Butte, Montana, and chaplain of Butte Central Catholic Schools. Enjoy. When we were in the sacristy, all the young ladies were standing in there, and then Robert walked in and he said, why are the girls dressed like princesses? And we were like, well... It's a good question, Robert. It's because they're going to receive the Lord today in a new way in the Eucharist. They're dressed like princesses, like brides, because Jesus Christ is the first one you give your heart to. So fathers, you hand your daughters over to Jesus before you hand them over to anyone else. There's something beautiful in that. And then young men, dress like grooms, because... You are taking on the image of Christ in a new way today, in the Eucharist. You become Christ in the world in a way that you weren't before. Because you have him in you, in your body, in a new way. So we celebrate that. It's a beautiful day. So today's first reading, the Sanhedrin are exasperated. You know, the apostles insist on continuing to preach the gospel. When, when they've been beaten and put in jail and strictly ordered not to preach that name, that name of Jesus. And they ask them, why do you keep doing this? And Peter stands up and replies, we must obey God rather than men. And that's it for him. That's all that matters. You know, whether gospel is opposed to the culture or even the law, we obey the gospel, for we obey God rather than men. And I think we're beginning to find ourselves in a similar place in our culture today. I dedicated a lot of this last year to teaching kids. I did a sort of year-long program for the Catholic Youth Coalition in what we call theological anthropology, which sounds complicated, but it's just the teaching of the church on who we are as human beings, the sort of who are we series. And then I've been teaching as much as I can up at Butte Central for theology of the body for 8th graders and freshmen and then moral theology for seniors. And that's all just to say that I've spent a ton of time digging into what the church teaches on who we are as human beings. What is human nature? What does it mean for our life, for how we live? What does it mean for our, our happiness, for our, the meaning of our lives? But I've also been digging into sort of what our culture has to say on these topics, on these same issues. What's the world have to say? And it's only really in this past year that I've begun to find them sort of diametrically opposed. It didn't seem like that previously, at least not in everything. But I'll give you a couple anecdotes to sort of flush out this discovery. You know, three years ago, I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine who was, she was down in Boulder at the time, and I was as well, you know, Boulder, Colorado, and she was studying at CU and getting her PhD in women's studies. And so I wanted to have some conversations with her because it was a really interesting PhD that she was getting into. And, and so we had this big, long, day-long discussion where we discussed every possible issue uh, that, that under the sun, you know, every hot-button issue, and none of them have really changed. But, for example, one of them, amongst the other sort of bigger, more intense issues, culturally, we discussed abortion. And we disagreed strongly in a few areas 
on, on the argument of personhood, you know, where, that's, where that begins, and then on the argument of you know, women's rights over their bodies, where does it extend? Does it extend to the baby in their womb? And even though that was very intense and we disagreed on a lot, we didn't hate each other at the end of the discussion. And we walked away friends. You know, I was obviously very pro-life and absolutely pro-life, and she was what I would say moderately pro-choice, especially moderate compared to uh, many of our laws that we're, are going in today. So a few months ago, I had a similar discussion on the same topic with an acquaintance of mine. And when I challenged the pro-choice position, she just responded by saying, you know, you're obviously a bigot who hates women and has no right to speak on this subject. And that was a very different response. You know, my opinion had no rights in that discussion. And so when I look at those two kind of conversations, only three years apart, I see a sort of shift culturally in, in our world. And, and I, I begin to realize that there's almost no moral teaching that the church has to give and, and very few social teachings that, that ally with Western culture. So there's something, something that we need to think about there. And further, Western culture isn't, any, isn't relativist anymore. Rel, relativism would be something like that first conversation where we disagreed strongly, but you can walk away and not... Uh, hate each other. Whereas our culture is turning more to be like that second conversation where it's very absolutist. Uh, Dissenting opinions have no place. There's an interesting article in the Atlantic about that. It's called The Death of Moral Relativism. And the author says, you know, this new code that our culture has adopted has created a paradoxical moment in which all is tolerated except the intolerant and all is included except the exclusive. So we as Christians are exclusive in a sense because we believe that there is such a thing as truth. And, and when you believe in truth, the, the truth excludes things that aren't true. You know, and there are ways of, of seeing the, the world and seeing who we are as human beings that, that we believe will never lead us to happiness. Uh, there are places where we diverge from mainstream culture on that. And this isn't going to be tolerated any, any longer. You know, the voice of Christianity is sort of being systematically pushed out of the public arena. And not just Christians, but anyone who has a strong opinion that differs from sort of that mainstream system. And I think this brings us back to our reading. You know, like, what happens to Peter and the apostles here? The Sanhedrin demand, again, that they sort of shut their mouths and leave and stopped preaching about Jesus. But Luke tells us that they left rejoicing that they had been worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. And the apostles took joy in their persecution. And later in their lives, every one of them would be martyred for that same gospel by the Roman Empire, except John, who was exiled for the rest of his life. Yet in the end, in the end, The Roman Empire, that pantheon of false gods, crumbles at the hands of Christians without ever raising a sword. The love of Christ won, conquered. So we can only expect sort of hatred from this world. It's not always the case, but that's what what Jesus tells us to expect. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. And he tells his disciples, if they hate you, remember that they hated me first. 
And we preach the kingdom of God, which isn't a kingdom of this world. For, for the king is Christ, and he's not of this world. But all the same, we rejoice as the disciples did when they, were, when they suffered. For we know that it's only the gospel that can bring us the fullness of life. So if we, if we preach the gospel with, with courage in our culture, if we live it well, we will be persecuted. Not in the same way the early Christians were, uh, but we'll be shamed and called bigots, um, rejected from the public debate. Yet, like Peter, we obey God rather than men. And so we preach it anyways. We live it in our families anyways. Confident that the truth still has this catching force, that it's still compelling to live the gospel well. But I'm not proposing uh, a sad life where we live as sort of victims of a culture that hates us. Because it's not sad. It's a joyful life to be a Christian. No matter where you're, where, no matter where you're living, it's a joyful life. You know, the early Christians were the most joyful and authentic people. Which is why it spread through the whole Roman Empire in less than 300 years. Which is basically the whole known world. You know, Christians weren't slaves to the world. They cared for one another in a totally new way. They cared for the poor in a totally new way that no one had ever seen. They claimed that we could be friends with God. That young men and women could be the brides of Christ. Christ in the world. No one had ever thought that before. That friendship with God was possible because Christ became a man and died for us. And that preaching won the hearts of people throughout the whole world, not because it sounds nice, but because it's true. Because it's true. So in, in our time, as, as the culture sort of grows more and more divergent from the church, from Catholicism, we have to call upon the Holy Spirit for a new sort of strength to live in this time. Uh, it's not the first time. You know, it's the ebb and flow of history. Uh, but we, we live in a time where the culture is growing away from the church. But we, pre- we present the Catholic faith, the truth of it, in a new way that's still beautiful. You know, it's Easter. We know Christ has risen from the dead. We can't lose this battle because Christ already won the battle. We just have to finish it off. Now I want to finish with a, a note from the gospel real quick. So the apostles, they're in this weird in-between time. You know, Christ has risen from the dead, but he hasn't given them their mission yet, and the Pentecost hasn't come. So... They don't know what to do with themselves, and it's a human tradition. When you don't know what to do with yourself, you go fishing. That's what we all do when we're confused about life. You know? and, and they don't catch any fish, which is usually what happens in those situations as well. I don't think there's a single time in the gospel when the, when the apostles catch fish without the help of Jesus. Yet, when they're out there, Jesus suddenly is sitting on the shore and he calls out to them. And it's John who recognizes him and he tells Peter. And Peter's always the one who acts first. So he jumps in the water and swims into shore. Because he can't wait to see the Lord. And when the boat comes in, Peter single-handedly pulls ashore 153 large fish. And that's, it's incredible. 153 large fish, you're talking 600 to 800 pounds. The net doesn't break, his strength doesn't fail. What does that mean for us? You know, there, scholars say that there were 153 species of fish in that lake. 
So it's, in a sense, it's symbolic of, of Peter catching everything, everyone. And so for us, it's our call to bring the gospel to the whole world in every age. That's our call. And the church will not break, you know, despite the horrible corruption that we see in the church. It won't break. And our strength won't fail, despite our weakness, despite our lack of faith, despite the challenges that we face, it will not fail. And if you're afraid of what is happening today, know that Christ made you for this exact time. He gave you exactly what you need to raise a family in this time, to live your faith in this age. You were made for this time. So Christ's first words in the gospel to Peter are, come, follow me. His last words in the gospel to Peter are simply, follow me. If we just follow the Lord, he will take care of us in any age. He's saying the same to us. No matter the time, no matter the challenges, the challenges inside the church, the challenges outside the church, the Lord is simply calling us to follow him. Amen.